Our gracious Heavenly Father, oh Lord, this is, Lord, one of the greatest texts in all of Scripture, Titus 2, 11 through 14. What a privilege we have to enter into this just um, dense portion of Scripture. I pray that it would be, Lord, for our encouragement and for our conviction as well, Father, that we would be renewed in the spirit of our minds as we look to your word. I pray that, Father, you would cause us to remove distractions from ourselves this morning, to not be thinking about the meal or anything on late, going on later on, but to be focusing on the meal of your word. You yourself said that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Help us, Lord, to receive the word implanted, which is able to save our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. I was commenting to someone just a few minutes ago that this is the first passage of Scripture that I memorized as an eight-year-old when I came from Mexico to the States. So I was learning English. This is a, I learned uh, um, this text in, in Iwana. I joined the Pioneers Club in Iwana at another church, and this was the theme text, Titus 2, 11 through 14. Little did I know what a great impact it would have in my life, and I know that it's had an impact, or its truths have in your life, and I pray that it would be a blessing to us these next couple of weeks or so as we will be looking at this great passage, Titus 2, 11 through 14. And the Word of God says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Zealous for good deeds. John Newton, who many of you are familiar with, was born on July 24th, 1725 in London, England. He was raised by a very devout Christian mother who from a very early age uh, taught uh, John um, the scriptures, the Bible, and many lyrics written by Isaac Watts, a hymn writer. But she died when he was seven years old and he did not follow in his mother's footsteps. Instead, John uh, plunged into wickedness. He spiraled downward. Um, For some years, he worked as a slave ship crew member, and he lived such a wicked life that even his fellow shipmates despised him because of his wickedness. Things got so bad for him, and he spiraled downward so deep that he even contemplated suicide. The turning point came when he was 22 years old, when one day on on a ship, he was awakened by a violent storm. And amidst this violent storm, he's being tossed to and fro, and he managed to make his way up to the upper deck in an effort to steer the ship. And as he did so, he witnessed a crew member swept away by the violent waters, never to be seen again. In desperation, Newton cried out, Lord, have mercy on us. Well, the Lord spared Newton and some of his crew members. And some say that this was the critical event in Newton's life that Um, moved Newton to to plead with God for forgiveness, to seek God's face and to give his life to the Lord. The great blasphemer, as Newton referred to himself, eventually quit the slave trading business. Newton was so transformed by the grace of God in the years thereafter. 
his transformation, whenever that was, so changed that people even began to encourage him as they watched his growth in Jesus Christ to become a pastor, which he eventually did. He was influenced by great preachers like George Whitfield and John Wesley. Later on in his life, Newton himself would be, have a profound impact upon others. He would have a huge impact on a great man that some of you are familiar with, William Wilberforce who was an English politician who eventually helped in, end the slave trade in uh, England. It was a, he had a great impact upon that man. Without a doubt, it was Newton's experience of the grace of God, of the transforming grace of God, that greatly shaped his writing of a song that is very familiar to most of us, and that is Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. He was a man completely sold out for Christ, who, who understood according to what that song says, that were it not for the transforming grace of God, he would still be stuck in his wickedness. One scholar has written that on Friday, January 1st, 1773, Newton said to his congregation, the Lord gives us many blessings, but unless we are grateful for these, we lose much of the comfort for them. What about you and I? Where were you when the Lord found you? I was a wretch. I was a wretch. It's believed that after years after writing the song Amazing Grace, while on his deathbed, Newton told one of his friends, quote, My memory is now nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. If you're a Christian this morning, your, your heart can identify with this, right? How many of us haven't, as we have looked back at our lives and our journey leading to Christ, have not rehearsed in our minds and watched the video play in our minds of the wickedness that we were involved with. Even moralism, trusting in our moralism or explicit wickedness. And how many of us have not come to say things like, I know that I am a great sinner and were it not for the grace of God, where would I be? We are great sinners and He is a great Savior. And the only contribution that we've made to our salvation is that we brought our great sin to the cross. That's it. That's our only contribution. God has touched our lives as He touched John Newton's life. And He has entered, He has brought light to our spiritual darkness. That's what He's done through His transforming grace. And it is this grace, beloved, this transforming grace that is the focus of, of Titus 2, 11 through, through 14. Where we're going to see that when God's grace touches a person... That person is forever different. That person is propelled to a life of holiness and faithful witness for Jesus Christ. We are propelled to those things when God's grace has touched our lives. God's grace is, is so great, so precious, so beautiful, so lovely, that it's like a diamond, isn't it? The most beautiful of diamonds, that you can look at that diamond from different perspectives and, and rotate it and look at, look at it from different angles and appreciate its intricacy and its beauty and its loveliness. I want you and I, as we look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, to think of God's grace as a precious, the most lovely of diamonds. And look at it from different viewpoints, from different angles, if you will, from different perspectives, I want to call it. From Titus 2, 11 through 14, I want to I want to look at three or see God's grace from three perspectives, three perspectives that we would marvel and we would appreciate and admire the great grace of God in our lives and in the lives of others. And as we do that, beloved, that we would be propelled as we appreciate the, the grace of God 
And the beauty of this diamond called the grace of God, we would be propelled to be holy people, set apart people, and faithful witnesses for the glory of God. The more that you understand God's transforming grace in your life and in the lives of others, the more that you will be passionate, zealous for displaying the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost world. We must be gripped by God's grace. And so the first aspect or perspective that I want to I want us to consider about God's grace is that God's grace is a saving grace. Saving grace. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14 is the is the theme passage of the book of Titus. It's the key to unlocking really everything. It flows in, the, the, chapters 1 and 2 flow into Titus 2, 11 through 14, and everything that follows flow, flows out from Titus 2, 11 through 14, and the rest of chapter 2 and into chapter 3. And it is one sentence. Verses 11 through 14 are one sentence, and Paul is very, very um, uh, famous in Scripture for doing this kind of a thing. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, that is one sentence in the Greek of Paul bursting forth, so captivated by the, by the great salvation of God that he bursts forth into, into 11, 12 verses, one sentence, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, just praising God for his, the greatness of his salvation. And he does something similar here again in Titus 2, 11 through 14. He wants to praise and, and marvel at the grace of God with these believers and for us as well. So it's all about the grace of God, the focus of this text. Now, so much confusion about what God's grace means um, exists. that I think it's important for us to, to define it. What is the grace of God? Many have put forward some great definitions that in some ways we're going to unpack Throughout these messages, one person has put it this way. God's grace is God's unmerited and undeserved favor or blessing to sinners who deserve only his just punishment. Someone else has given this definition. Grace is God's kind intention toward mankind, whereby he saves, instructs, and enables his people. And yet another person has given this very concise, quick definition for you to think about and to even memorize after the five letters of the word grace. God's grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense after the five letters of the word grace. What a great definition. All of these definitions of grace are so, so good. And, and in essence, what I want to do now as sort of subpoints under this main point of saving grace is expand upon and marvel at God's grace by looking at some features of God's saving grace from verse 11. First of all, a sort of a, your first subpoint here. I want you to notice that God's saving grace produces holiness. Produces holiness. We're going to return back and expand upon this next week especially. God's saving grace produces holiness. You see that little word at the beginning of verse 11? The word for? For the grace of God. That little word gives us the reason or the foundation for the godly conduct required of the various groups in verses 2 through 10. The reason why older men are to function this way, the reason why uh, older women are to function this way, the reason why young and older, uh, young or uh, men and women are to function uh, in, uh, with godly conduct, 
investing themselves into one another is for or because the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. It's the foundation for all of those instructions. In other words, the reason why we are able and empowered to live lives that glorify God and display Christ to an unknown world is because God has touched us by His grace. The grace of God has appeared. You have been saved. You have been transformed. You have been, you have been changed from a, from, you have been, um, uh, you're not, no longer now a sinner. You are a saint, positionally speaking. Not a saint in the Roman Catholic sense. Saint uh, simply means holy one, set apart one, set apart from sin unto Christ. You are now a saint, a holy one. Why? Because the grace of God has appeared. He has set you apart. Saving grace produces holiness. And the more that we understand this great truth, the more that we are driven, driven to want to honor the Lord with loving obedience in our lives and godly conduct. You know, I've talked to people over the years living in sin who say, I am a Christian. When I ask them, are you you a Christian? Well, their answer most of the time is, I am a Christian. I ask them, why do you think that? They say, "Well, well, I prayed a prayer once. When I was a little kid, or maybe as a teenager, or maybe as an adult, I have been reading and learning the Bible for a really long time. I know a lot of things about the Bible. In fact, some of them, a couple of them that I can think of over the years, were even teaching the Bible. Teachers of the Bible. Grew up in Sunday school. Even, even, even I believe, or have embraced a lot of facts of wisdom from the Bible for living. But they're living in sin. They're living in sin. They're not practicing that wisdom. I'm very involved in my church. I am born, I was born to a Christian family. I grew up in a Christian home. Some people believe that that's what makes them a Christian. Almost by osmosis, you automatically become a Christian. That's not, a, that's not the case. I'm here to tell you that if you are not more like Jesus, more holy, more set apart today after making a profession of faith for however long ago it was, if you are not more holy and worse, if you do not desire to be holy, to be like Jesus, what makes you think that you're a Christian? Saving grace produces holiness. That's why Jesus came, not just to deliver us from hell, but to also set us apart from sin for himself. Saving grace produces holiness. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 says this, But like the Holy One who called you, like the Holy One who called you, meaning God, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, for it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. One of the characteristics, beloved, of a genuine child of God is that he or she longs to be like like his heavenly father. Longs to be like her heavenly father. You want to be like the Lord. You want to be Christ-like. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. And that word sanctification is the Greek word hagias, which means holy, set apart, consecrated. Unto God. What is he saying? Without holiness, there is no salvation. Because without you desiring and seeking to become more and more like Jesus, that gives evidence if that is absent in your life that you are not, you don't belong to the Lord. He who God saves, he sanctifies. We're going to see that next week. So saving grace produces holiness and longing for holiness. More on this later. Secondly, Saving grace comes from God. Saving grace comes from God. Look at verse 11. 
for the grace of God. For the grace of God. Every single word in God's word is important. And every little phrase, and I want you to notice that little prepositional phrase, of God, for the grace of God. That little phrase signals that God is the source of his loving kindness, of his grace. God is its source. It is the grace that comes from God. Listen to me this morning clearly. You are not saved because you are, you are inherently good. You are not saved because you've worked for it. You are not saved because you're kind enough or you've done a lot of humanitarian efforts. You and I are sinners. We are all sinners. That is a universal reality. We are born by nature. We are sinners and we've spent our whole lives just fleshing that sinful nature out in our sin. All of us fall short of God's perfection. Romans 3.23 says that we all miss the mark. For all have sinned and fall short, i.e. miss the mark, the bullseye of God's glory. We all fall short. No one can earn or merit God's salvation. No one can. And yet every religion in the world, to some extent or another, puts the ultimate responsibility on man doing something to please God, doing something to be accepted before God. Every single religion does. Mark it. Accept biblical Christianity. It's all about what Christ did and not what we did. Amen? It's all about what He did. I was reminded of this yesterday, how every religion uh, in some way, shape, or form uh, puts forward the, 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 um, the deception and the lie that somehow man can do something to be pleasing to the Lord. We were uh, buying Chinese food at a restaurant in La Crescenta, and as we were paying for the Chinese food, there was this, this display or setup on the floor where on it were little idols, little mini Buddhas. And then in front of the mini Buddhas were miniature bowls with chow mein and different kinds of Chinese food for the Buddhas, for the idols. And I was reminded, wow, wow, right there on the floor in their Chinese uh, restaurant. There's a perfect example right there of how every religion in the world in some way, shape, or form, it's all about what I do to sacrifice to my idols. What I do to earn favor before my whatever deity I worship. Every religion, beloved, does that. But the Bible says that we cannot earn God's favor. Romans 3 says that there is none righteous. There is none good. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none righteous. No, not one. All of us are guilty and condemned before God. Every single one of us stands guilty apart from Jesus Christ. It's all by His grace found in Christ that one is saved. All of it. So God is the source of salvation. Saving grace comes from God. Thirdly, the saving grace is given through Christ. The saving grace is made available to us through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared For the grace of God has appeared. That phrase there, has appeared, or that verb there, refers to to the fact that it's been manifested. The grace of God has been revealed to us. In whom? In whom? In Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. I want you to take note of something about our gracious God. God's grace is not just a feeling, a passing emotion in the heart of God, whereby He doesn't do anything about that, that kind intention for us. 
God's grace and kind intention is shown actively in real time and real human history. And what? And the fact that in the most epic monumental event of history, he showed us and his grace appeared in the person and the work of who? Jesus. Jesus, His grace has appeared. Jesus Christ is the ultimate visible manifestation of God's grace. And we know that it's Jesus Christ because look at verse 13 of chapter 2. It says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing, same word, talking now about His second advent, His second coming, Jesus Christ, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus what did he do? He gave himself for us for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. Chapter 2 verse 13 is speaking of Jesus' second advent, of his second coming. And 2.11 is speaking of his first coming, his incarnation as we know it. His coming in the flesh, the eternal son of God coming in the flesh. When we started this book back in chapter 1 verse 2. We saw that God promised a a redemptive plan from long ages ago in Titus chapter 1 verse 2. Meaning that before the foundation of the world, God set forth a plan to redeem humanity for himself. And then in human history, at a very specific, epic moment of time, he indeed fulfilled his plan in the fact that Jesus, the Savior, arrived on the scene, right? And that's called his incarnation. That's why John 1.14 says that the Word, speaking of Jesus, the eternal Son of God specifically, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Speaking of Jesus, and who is He? He is the God-man. He is 100% God, God of very God, and man in the flesh. He wrapped himself with humanity. He added humanity to his deity. He is the perfect God-man. And what did he do in real time here on this earth? In that epic moment, those 33 years of his life, he lived a perfect life, didn't he? No one else can do that, beloved. No one else qualifies to be the redeemer of mankind. Only Jesus, because he's the perfect God-man, blameless. He loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength all 33 years of his life. Think about that. He never sinned. He never overstepped God's law. He came to fulfill all righteousness. All of his motivations, all of his thoughts, all of his actions were pure and perfect and in conformity to loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving his neighbor as himself. Never committed a sin. Never a sinful action. Never uttered a sinful word. Never a sinful misplaced priority. Never deficient in his love for God and his service for others. This is what we call in theology, Jesus' active obedience. His perfect life, in his perfect life, he was completely blameless, sinless, without defect. Glory to Jesus. Glory to him. And it's precisely because he is the God-man, and because he's the perfect sinless one, that he alone qualifies to be the redeemer of mankind. No one else can do this. Only one who is both God and man can pay for the sins of mankind. And only one who is perfect and blameless, the blameless, sinless Lamb of God, is the only one who can take away the sins of the world. 
Only Jesus satisfies the wrath of God. Only Jesus can do this. What did he do in his humanity in this epic moment of time when the grace of God appeared in human history? He suffered, didn't he? He suffered like no other. He was blameless and innocent, yet he was beaten and torn in pieces, spit upon, rejected, ridiculed. All for what? Because he sinned? No, but because we sinned and because we're sinners. He did it for us. He did it for you and I. And then what did that lead to ultimately? His death on the cross. On, his, on the cross, he was the great sin bearer who absorbed God's wrath for our sins on our behalf. That is what substitutionary atonement means. That Jesus died in our place to pay for our sins on the cross. Absorbing God's wrath for our sins. That's what penal substitution means. That he paid the penalty for our sins on the cross as our substitute. That's what he did. But then gloriously, right? Much to the approval of God the Father, he rose from the dead three days later. As a vindication of who he said he was. The eternal Son of God, the God-man. He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, and He lives exalted at the right hand of God where He continually intercedes for the sins of His people. Can I get an amen to that? What a glorious, glorious Savior we have. What did Jesus' sacrifice in our place accomplish? Atonement. Payment for our sins. His sacrifice satisfied God's wrath for our sins and God's righteous demands. Jesus is the appearing of the grace of God. He is the appearing of the grace of God. Again, John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt means tabernacled among us. A tabernacle was a symbol of God's presence. It says the Word became flesh and dwelt. He was amongst us and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, meaning that He came from the Father, Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And then John 1, 16-17. For of His fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. I love how John is trying to come up with the words to talk about the infinite worth of Jesus Christ and His incomparable nature. And he uses words like fullness. And then st- stacks up words in John 1, 16 and 17. He, he was grace upon grace. In other words, overflowing, superabundant grace was Jesus Christ. And there's no words to describe the graciousness of Jesus. Piling up words, coming up with words that don't even exist. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fullness of of God's grace. He is the mediator of God's grace. Someone has put it this way. There is not one drop of grace that does not flow from the pure pipeline who is Jesus. I like that. Not one drop of grace flows. There's not one drop of grace that that does not flow from the pure pipeline of Jesus. Everything, saving grace, and as we're going to see next week, sanctifying grace, flows from the pipeline of Jesus, His person and His redemptive work on our behalf. Think about that. It should keep us from legalism, thinking that somehow it's about us and what we bring to the table. And it should keep us from libertarianism, right? 
Knowing that God empowers us by His grace to live holy lives and not live it up as the world wants to be living it up. God's grace is kind intentions towards sinners and flows from Jesus Christ. Jesus is the grace of God personified. Fourthly, fourthly, saving grace rescues sinners. Saving grace rescues sinners. Look at verse 11 with me. For the grace of God has appeared, and please note here, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Mm-mm-mm. That word salvation there has the idea of rescue, of deliverance from impending sure danger. Deliverance, rescue. And when he says all to all men, Paul is not promoting the heresy of universalism, that every person will be ultimately saved on earth. What he means is that this grace is intended for all kinds of people. All kinds of people is the idea. Without partiality or discrimination, regardless of class, ethnicity, gender, or social status, when you look around in this room, for those of us who are believers, there are people from different backgrounds, from different ethnicities, from every different different kind of social standing. There are all kinds of people who have experienced a saving grace of God, even in this worship center. And one day in heaven, we're going to see people of all kinds of different tongues and nations and tribes with different backgrounds and life experiences who have put their faith in Jesus Christ who are going to be there. All kinds of people have experienced the grace of God. The sense in verse 11 is that God's grace has appeared with saving power. With saving power. Jesus told his followers of this purpose, didn't he? That he came to save Matthew 18, verse 11. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Jesus made no bones about his, his purpose or his mission. He came to save sinners. Matthew chapter 20, 20, verse 28. He said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to save sinners. And you can't miss the focus of God as Savior in the book of Titus. I want you to just do a little survey with me. The focus of, of the, the, the saving nature of our great God. Look back in chapter 1 and verse 3. But at the proper time manifested even His Word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Look at verse 4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Look at chapter 2 and verse 10. Speaking of bond slaves, who are not to be pilfering in verse 10, but showing all good faith. Why? So that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And then verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Look at chapter 3 and verse 4. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, verse 5, He saved us. And then in verse 6, whom He poured out, speaking of the Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Beloved, eight times in this book, the, uh, uh, Paul to Titus is highlighting the fact that we have a saving God. A saving God. And what do we need salvation from? We need salvation from our sin, don't we? 
And the punishment for our sin, for our sin. Some of us sitting in here understand this, that we have received God's saving grace, that we have been rescued, that we have been delivered from our sin and the punishment for our sin. And we are so full of gratitude and we seek to live the Christian life, not because we add anything to the, to the saving work of God, but because we are full of gratitude and exuberant joy because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. There are many of you in here that have embraced the saving grace of God. But there are others of you who have not. There are others of you who I'm sad to say you have not been rescued. And can I say to you this morning that this is the greatest need of your existence. Your greatest need is that you would be saved from your sin. That you would be rescued from your sin. You see, there are only two kinds of people in this world. Those who are slaves of Jesus Christ, who is a good Savior and a good Master. Or you are a slave of your sin. That's right. You are a slave of your sin. See, some people think that if you come to Jesus Christ and you embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior, then you become a slave and you're no longer free as before. Listen to me. You need to realize that if you are not following Jesus Christ and He is not your master, you are a slave and you are a slave of your master who is sin. You're a slave of sin. You think you're free? You think you're free? If you don't belong to Christ, you are serving sin. That's what Romans 6 speaks about. That at one point before coming to know Jesus Christ, before Christ, we were slaves of unrighteousness, slaves of our sin. But now having come to know Jesus, we are slaves of Christ and slaves of righteousness. You either fall in one category or another. Listen to me. You are a slave of your sin. You are a sinner. You have broken the law of God. He made you. He created you. You are accountable to Him. You are not autonomous. You are not to be self-ruling or functioning that way. You have broken God's law, but on a deeper level, it's deeper than that. Sin at its very core is idolatry, isn't it? It's self-idolatry. You know what sin is? Sin is elevating man above God. Sin sin is when you have taken the purposes of God that you would glorify Him and enjoy Him and you spit upon that and you said it's about me and my pursuits. And in doing that, it's about worshiping you on this earth. You have elevated yourself above God. Anytime we place other things and other people above God, we are committing idolatry. Anytime people or other things or pursuits become more important than pleasing the Lord, we are worshiping our little messiahs with a little M rather than the ultimate messiah with a capital M who is the king of the universe. Oh, we have our little messiahs, don't we? With a little M. My desires. Oh, desires. Oh, desires. Oh, pursuits, oh, priorities, oh, possessions, oh, selfish ambition, oh, relationships. We worship those. We don't worship God. And that is idolatry. That is elevating man above God. God created you to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. 
And if you are not fulfilling that purpose, then you are a sinner. And that is your problem. You are worshiping yourself. You're cherishing other things above God who is to be worshipped and cherished above anything in your life. What is the greatest commandment in Deuteronomy 6? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? Well, that is the core of the problem. We don't cherish God and we don't love God supremely. That is sin, isn't it? That is sin. And we simply show it in the way that we break God's law, internally and outwardly. What is sin? John Piper answers for us. Sin is the glory of God not honored. It is the holiness of God not reverenced. It is the greatness of God not admired. It is the power of God not praised. It is the truth of God not sought. It is the wisdom of God not esteemed. It is the beauty of God not treasured. It is the goodness of God not savored. It is the faithfulness of God not trusted. It is the commandments of God not obeyed. It is the justice of God not respected. It is the wrath of God not feared. It is the grace of God that we're looking at this morning not cherished. It's the presence of God not prized. It's the person of God not loved. That is sin. End quote. That is sin. The next time that you fool yourself into thinking that you are not a sinner, ask yourself, do I love and cherish God every moment of the day in my thoughts, in my attitudes, in my motives, in my words, in my actions, in my desires, in my pursuits, in my life goals? Are all of those subordinate to my Creator who created me for His glory? I am for Him. I exist for Him. And none of us do this. None of us love Him as supremely as we ought to. Some of you need to be saved from your sin. You're terribly lost and living in darkness. Some of you, you go through every single day of your life with not even an afterthought of God in your mind. Not even as an afterthought. The first question that you ask yourself every day when you wake up or throughout the day is not what does God want for me today? Who can I be a blessing to for the glory of God? But what do I want What pleases me? What gives me happiness? You live to worship yourself. You're slave to your own sin. And I don't want you to be deceived and lie to you this morning. There is going to come a time of great reckoning for the way that you're living your life enslaved to your sin, going after your own pleasures rather than the pleasures found in God. There's going to come a time of reckoning where you are going to stand before the great judge. You're going to have to give an account to him. I wonder how you feel when you hear things like that. When you're being confronted with that truth, are you indifferent to it? Say, I don't care. I don't care. Or yeah, right. According to your religion. Listen, I don't want to leave it up to chance someday to know what's going to happen with the eternal state of my soul. It's not up to chance, is it? God has revealed himself in his word. And he has told us how the story ends. He has told us how it ends. And he has told us in his word that if you continue to serve your master, sin on this earth, sin will surely pay you in the end with some great reward called death. Death. That's what Romans 6.23 says. The wages, the payment, the just payment of of sin is death. 
When you serve your master's sin, he will pay you in full, and that payment will be death. And you know what? Physical death is the least of your worries, beloved. Or my friend, sin, uh, death on this earth is the least of your worries, because past physical death in this life, you're facing eternal death. Are you hearing me? Eternal damnation and separation from God in a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, a real place called hell. Hell. Jesus spoke of this place in Matthew 25, 46, when he's speaking about those who don't belong to Jesus. And he says, these who don't belong to me will go away into everlasting punishment. Hell is a real place of eternal torment and suffering for those who have not turned from their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Are you listening to me? But the grace of God has appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And you know why hell is an unending place of suffering? As a reminder of the fact that sin against God is serious and of infinite severity. That is why hell exists as that reminder. If you reject God's free grace in Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection, physical death is the least of your worries. The least of your worries. I mean this with all love. I don't want any of you to go there. Here we are talking about the saving grace of God found only in Christ Jesus. And how could it be that there are some of you sitting in here who just spurn the face of God and spit at His face and at His free grace of, of, of salvation in Jesus Christ, or you're indifferent to it. And you don't bow the knee to your Creator by faith in Jesus Christ. How could that be? And yet I want to believe that there's others of you in here who are broken as you're hearing this yet again. And who maybe are thinking, but pastor, my sin is great. But listen to me. Jesus is greater. And maybe you're thinking, but you don't know what I have done. You know what? I don't know what you have done. I really don't. And frankly, I don't even want to know what you've done. But I can tell you what Jesus has done to save you. I can tell you about that. Perfect life. Death resurrection, exaltation at the right hand of the Father so that you by faith would have a continual high priest who intercedes for you before God the Father? What a blessing. What a blessing. Please understand, as you're listening to this, you cannot be saved simply by hearing this message. You cannot. It's our fifth point. Saving grace must be received. Fifth, saving grace must be received. Meaning that if you're listening to this message, you must receive it. It's a free gift offered to you from a gracious God. Free, unmerited, undeserved. But you must receive it. You must receive it with the empty hand of faith. Bringing only your sin and saying, Lord, here's my sin. Empty hand, no works, no human merit. Salvation is not earned by the currency of our own works or merits. It's all by the merits of Jesus Christ. You must receive it by faith. You must turn from your sins. Repentance means agreeing with God that you are a sinner. Confessing your sin to Him and making a conscience choice that you are going to turn from your sin and abandon your life of self-idolatry and self-worship to worship the one true God. You must come to Jesus with an empty hand of faith. 
You must receive the saving grace. Listen to Romans 10.9. If you confess, that means to agree with the Lord. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and Lord means master, sovereign ruler. You confess that He is. Jesus is my Lord, my master, ruler. I no longer live for myself. I want to live for Him. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, there's a sincere part of it. It's not externalistic only. It's genuine from a a, a heart that is broken over your sin and your sense of unworthiness. You come as a beggar with empty hands of faith. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. In John 1.12, But as many as received him, meaning Jesus, that means to, to trust or embrace Him. As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Faith in Christ. John 3.16, one of my favorite verses. For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If there's ever a text that talks about the Free gift of God, it's that one. Salvation is freely offered, offered, but you must extend your hands empty of faith as a beggar coming, knowing that you have nothing to offer the king of the universe except your sin, and he can deal with your sin because Jesus has taken our sins and nailed them to the cross. He has indeed. The Savior of the world must be received by faith. Trust. Self-abandonment, a transfer of trust from self to what Christ has done in his merits. That's what faith is, a transfer of trust. No longer trusting in anything that I, not even in the oda of anything that I have to offer, not one percentage point, but all trust transferred to Jesus' atoning work on my behalf. Self-abandonment. Listen, knowledge doesn't save you. It doesn't matter how much you know this morning. You can know a lot of things and not be saved. It doesn't matter how many good works you do. Good works don't save us. It doesn't matter how humanitarian you are and how many humanitarian efforts you are involved in giving to. Humanitarian efforts or kindness doesn't save you. It doesn't matter how religious you are and you delve into all kinds of different religions. There is only one way, one truth, and one life, and that is Jesus Christ. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides in him. There's only one way to be saved, and that is Jesus Christ. Practicing religions doesn't save you. It's about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if you've grown up in the church or if you've come to church all of your life. If you give a lot of offerings and sacrifices, as Psalm 50 that I read earlier said, that God takes no delight in their offerings, the Israelites, because of their sinfulness from within, because they truly are not dependent upon Him. It doesn't matter even in our day and age, beloved, how many offerings you bring before God. It, those offerings don't save you. There's only one sacrifice and one offering that saves by faith, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. The appearing of the grace of God. God doesn't grade on a curve. God doesn't grade you on a curve, meaning that as long as we measure up better than the next person, we are okay. None of those things save. None of your performance or how you measure up or stack up to other people saves you, you understand. There are no A students 
in Jesus' kingdom. There's only one A student, and that is Jesus. And all other students who get in are students through Him, right? We're clothed in His righteousness. Only Jesus saves. You must receive God's saving grace by faith. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. No one should boast. Listen, if you are not a Christian this morning, I want to remind you that God's grace is being offered to you freely, freely. God's grace has been shown to you in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And I want to call on you and challenge you to stop playing games with God. Stop playing games with your life. Stop playing games, thinking that somehow on this earth, your pursuits are more important than the ultimate pursuit of worshiping and glorifying God. Stop playing games with your soul. Stop playing games with your soul. Stop neglecting the salvation of your soul. Can there be anything more important than the salvation of your eternal soul? Anything. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will will a man give in exchange for his soul? There's nothing that you can pursue or achieve or attain in this life that is going to earn you acceptance before God. And there's nothing that you can gain as far as possessions or anything, the toys on this earth, and bring them to the judgment seat, uh, to, to, to God's feet and say, Lord, based upon these things, can I enter into heaven? And God will say, what did you do with my son? Did you believe in him? Did you receive him by faith? Did you abandon self-worship and self-idolatry and trust in my son? Listen to me. Nothing is more important than the salvation of your soul. These bodies that we have are but a shell. And we're going to receive new bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. Amen? I feel it right now. I want a new body already. This world as we know it will be done away with. And all that will be left is a new heavens and a new earth. Listen to me, full of people with new perfect bodies who have bowed the knee to King Jesus. And only those who have embraced the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world will be there with Him. Only those. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but those who do the will of God abide forever. Forever. Listen, for those of us who are Christians, those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, who have experienced God's saving grace, may you and I rejoice with Paul when he said in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified, that is declared righteous before God, by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. We stand innocent before the Lord, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if you have have experienced this saving grace and this peace of God, then you will seek to walk in holiness. And we're going to see this next week all the more, that if you have been the recipient of God's grace as a believer, then your response should be joyful gratitude, loving obedience, and a commitment to holiness for God's glory that we would display Christ to a, a lost world. That should be our greatest desire. Sure, we will struggle. Sure, we will be weak. Sure, we'll have seasons of life that will be dark seasons of life. 
But our desire at the end of the day is to be set apart for Him, right? To be living for the glory of God. So let me ask you this morning, if you are a recipient of God's saving grace as a believer, are you striving for holiness? Are you striving for loving obedience? We've been walking through Titus chapter 2, talking about godly character and the example that we ought to be to one another, beginning with the older, investing themselves into the younger. Let me ask you this. Is it your highest aim to glorify God by pursuing godly character so that you could be a blessing to others around you, beginning with your family and extending onto the church and to the, uh, to the lost world? Are you walking in holiness? Are you walking in loving obedience as a response to the grace of God? Men, are you fulfilling your God-given responsibilities to shepherd your family? As a recipient of God's saving grace, He has set you apart from sin so that you would be devoted to Him and to good works for His glory. Are you fleshing that out by fulfilling your spiritual leadership in your home? For those of you who are married, do you spend time with your wife praying with her and in the Word with her? Talking about the grace of God together? Worshiping the Lord together? Do you spend time reading to your kids, spending time with them, teaching them about Jesus and pointing them to Christ? Are you spiritually leading your family? If you are not, then you need to return to the saving grace of God and be reminded of the fact that He has not just delivered you from hell, He's delivered you from dead works and selfishness so that you would be an unselfish man who spiritually leads your family. And ladies... Single or married, are you devoted to Christ? You who are married, are you walking in loving submission to your husbands? As unto the Lord. Are you doing it joyfully from the heart? Are you seeking to to, um, um, resolve matters of conflict in your marriage? Both men and women. Are you resolving conflicts in your marriage? Are Are you extending forgiveness to your spouse as a wife? Are you asking for forgiveness for your own sins? If you are not, then I need to remind you that you need to return to meditate upon the saving grace of God. And for all of us, especially those of us who are older, are we invested into other people? Are we practicing life-on-life discipleship with one another? I'm so thankful for so many of you who have been responding to the Word of God in Titus chapter 2, especially those of you who are older. I love seeing more and more of you in many different contexts in the life of our church to invest yourself informally to the lives of the younger. I love that. And some of you have taken the bull by the horns and now you're meeting with some younger people. Listen to me. Excel still more, beloved. Excel still more as those who have received, been recipients of the saving grace of God. But there's others of you who are still walking in disobedience in that area. Nobody's investing into you. You're not inviting with humility people investing into your life. And you're not extending that investment to anybody else. You're selfish with your time. You're not willing to sacrifice even one hour a week to do that. May I remind you to return to the saving, transforming grace of God so that you are driven to be spending your time invested into other people as Jesus did for you, didn't he? Going to the cross on your behalf to pay for your sins? Listen, beloved, we've been justified. We stand innocent. But there's a sense in which we are continually being saved in the sense that we are putting off dead works and we are putting on righteous living, right? The grace of God saves us and empowers us to live no longer for ourselves, but for Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ. Next week we're going to see this. That God's grace 
this beautiful diamond that we're looking at, we're going to rotate that beautiful diamond and look at it from a different perspective. And we're going to see that God's grace is not just limited to our salvation from the penalty and, and the punishment of our sin, but this grace is dynamic and continues to work in us so that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus. Not only is grace a saving grace, but it's a sanctifying grace. All right? So make sure that you come next week. All right? Let's pray together. Father, oh Lord, you are a gracious God. And your grace is not just a feeling or emotion that you felt. But Lord, it's your kind intention shown to us very visibly in the person and the work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your grace. We marvel at it. We're amazed at this beautiful, precious diamond that is your grace. And I pray that as we continue to look at it and ponder it, that you might drive us, Lord, to be people who live holy lives, displaying the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that desperately needs to see Christ through us and through our lives. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.